We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Omani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmina. If you have a Bible today, let's open up to the book of Esther, chapter 1. I've never taught through this book before, but I'm super excited about it, the book of Esther. It's a great book of the Bible. And yet at the same time, it's interesting, over the years, there have been some who have wondered even if this book belongs in the Bible. And the reason for that is because, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but the book of Esther does not contain a single mention of God. Not one. No divine title whatsoever. Not even a pronoun pointing to God or even a prayer offered to him. No quotations from the New Testament of the book of Esther. And so some people wonder about this book. And yet, ironically, the book of Esther is one of the clearest teachings and examples of the providence of God. It's a a big word, the providence of God, but it's an important work. And you guys got to fall in love with this concept that God is sovereign That even though you don't see it happening, He is always working in our life. He's always working in the land. And it's a beautiful uh, theological truth that, that really when we get to know it, it just encourages us no matter what we're going through. The providence of God is defined as the rule of God by which He, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. And you know, you look at your life, you know, you look at the things that you go through. And we're going to see even in the book of Esther, not that, you know, we, you know, make light of these things, but God can use everything. God can use divorce. He'll use that in this book. God can use sleepless nights. He'll use that in this book. God can use delayed rewards. I mean, just, you know, when you run into somebody, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but there you are, you go to to Walmart or Target and you run into somebody. Um, I've come to the point to realize in my life that that's not a coincidence, that for some reason God let our paths meet because of the providence of God. And so you you take advantage of those situations. And so... You know, this book right here, even though it doesn't mention God, there's no prayers to God, they do fast, but they don't really talk about the Lord whatsoever. It's actually, in one sense, awesome because it's a picture of God. You know, you can look at someone and they might not be preaching all the time, but they're living. A lot of times I like that more. You know, it's comforting to know that no matter how bad my boss treats me or or what disease or calamities befall me, From the biggest of the events in my life to the smallest events. He allows it for his good and glorious purposes. It's all part of his providential plan for my life. You know, and so we're going to learn that as we go through the book of Esther. And perhaps nowhere else is the providence of God so evident than in the nation of Israel. There and then, in Esther's time, we're going to see it. God protected the nation. But even, you guys saw, miraculously uh, today, right? 
I mean, you know, I don't know. I think of Israel a lot. Ever since I went to Israel, I fell in love with Israel even more. We should pray for Israel. The Bible says in Genesis 12, verse 3, that he blesses those who bless Israel, right? And he curses those who don't. And so when our nation began to turn their backs on Israel, it's a scary thing. Recently, perhaps you heard what happened in the United Nations. For the first time in decades, our Our country did not support Israel. And what happened as a result of that was the United Nations passed a resolution saying that the Israelis, as they're offering more Jewish settlements in the land, were doing something that was illegal. And so what happened for the first time in history, we went against our allies, Israel. And you know what that means? That means that God's going to take his hand off of us. But then I was just cool because, you know, here's this guy Trump. He's over here tweeting these things, you know. And I was just praising God. Again, I don't know what's going to happen with, uh, with President Trump. It's, uh, we don't know. But I'll tell you what, going into it, he is a supporter of Israel. He says he would acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital. And I'll tell you what, man, I'm excited about that because I know this, that Israel is special to God. They're the apple of His eye. And yes, we are too. We are the descendants of Abraham in a spiritual way, but they are in a physical way. And so when you look at Israel, everything that's happened to them, the Holocaust, all that they went through, and then here they are again, a a nation in 1948, regaining Jerusalem in 1967, and all the things that are going on today. I'll tell you what, Here is a nation, one-fourth of them are atheists. In Israel, only 2% are Christian. They're not advocating God. They're not believers in Jesus. But God is working in Israel. And then, you know, that, that's what we see in, in the book of Esther, really. It's interesting. Some even wonder whether or not Mordecai and Esther were really in love with the Lord because in all reality, they should have gone back to the land. But God would use their life and God would work in their life. And by the time it's all said and done, everyone will see the providence of God and the hand of God upon their life. And so this book is about the preservation of the nation of Israel rescued by an orphan beauty queen and a series of, we'll call them fortuitous events, clearly displaying the providence of God. And what we find, you guys, even Joshua shared this last week when he was doing the study, is man rules, but God overrules, right? And what we find is God is sovereign, and even though man chooses his own destiny, God uses it all for good. And so let's dive in, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now it happened to, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. And so the book takes place in the days of Ahasuerus. Uh, he's got a funny uh, Persian name. This is his Hebrew name. In the Greek, his name is Xerxes. 
And so this is King Xerxes, his father was Darius I, his grandfather was Cyrus the Great. Some of you guys are probably familiar with those names in the Bible. And so this king, Ahasuerus, he comes from an illustrious uh, background, and he ruled over the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 BC. And what happens when you fit the pieces of the puzzle together is that the book of Esther takes place in between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. So it's important to know when it took place. After the temple had been rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and you read that in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and you read Haggai, and you read that contemporary prophet of all this, then Ezra uh, led a group from Persia to Jerusalem after the time of Esther. And so first you have Zerubbabel and Joshua. They're there. They're sent to rebuild the temple. Uh, they eventually do rebuild it. But in between, after they rebuild it, then comes Esther, what we're going to talk about. Then comes uh, um, Ezra. And then comes Nehemiah. So it's interesting when you think about it. Because if the ministry of Ezra came after the events of Esther, and we believe and are sure that it did, then more than likely Ezra was inspired by the theological truth of the sovereignty of God displayed in the story of Queen Esther. And who knows, maybe even she was influential in telling Ezra to go. That's how huge this story is. I mean, when you look at her story, a little orphan girl happened to be beautiful, ends up becoming the queen of Persia, used by God to save Israel. When you look at everything that happens in this story, I mean, you look back and you say, man, God is alive. God is on the throne. Ezra, you should have gone back the first time, but it's okay. God's the God of the second chance. And you go back now. Because Jeremiah had told everybody, if you're a real Christian or if you're a real Jew, you're not going to stay in Babylon. You're not going to stay in Persia. You're going to go back to Jerusalem. That's where you belong after 70 years. And so everyone who didn't was actually disobedient. And so praise God for the story of Esther. I believe used by the Lord to stir people up like Ezra and probably Nehemiah. And so many other people. You know, we read about Ahasuerus and we find out when it takes place. In between Ezra 6 and 7. And we read here in verse 1 that he was uh, reigning over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And so it's a huge, massive amount of land. And what you find is uh, this kingdom, the Medo-Persia kingdom is the second kingdom described in Daniel chapter 2. If you remember there, uh, the king had a dream and he saw this image. The first was Babylon and that was a head of gold. The second was Medo-Persia, chest and arms of silver. Third was Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze. And then fourth was Rome where the legs and feet of iron. The feet, however, in the last days will become iron and clay. And so when you look at that, gold, silver, bronze, iron, what you find is they begin to deteriorate in their value of metals. And so even though geographically they're greater, in their power they're lesser. And that's going to be a factor as we study through the 
book of Esther, Nebuchadnezzar, that head of gold, was the ultimate despot and dictator. And then in the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, we'll see the king was subject to the law. We're going to see that. And then the same is true of Greece. And then you have the Senate of Rome and so on and so forth. And so this is kind of going on here, this worldwide dominion. And then we read there in verse 3 that Ahasuerus, he made a feast for all his servants and officials, powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes and provinces were all before him. And so check it out in verse 4. It says, And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, look at this, 180 days in all. That's six months. Think about that. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains. White and blue was royal colors. Uh, And there were fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble. And they served drinks, check this out, in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so we're going to look at the background a little bit before we dive into the story. What led up to this whole event where one day this little girl in an obscure village would become the queen of the country. And it started here with this feast. Um, More than likely, the king didn't assemble all his officials at one time. They would have kept them away from their duties. And think about it. If all the leaders were not, you know, where they were supposed to be for six months, that would probably have its toll on the empire, would weaken it. And so it's more than likely that during this six-month period, uh, the king brought officers to Shushan, kind of like a rotating basis, okay? So six months, you got you know certain leaders coming at this time, certain leaders coming at this time, and at this time. And then after the six months is done, then you have the final seven-day feast, where more than likely on this last seven-day feast, all the leaders would come, every single one, and all the people there in Shushan, okay? And so, again, we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty sure of something that took place in history. And that is that, that the king here, Ahasuerus, he was motivated and moving like a chess man because he had a desire to attack Greece. That's what history tells us. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, King Ahasuerus was meeting with his leaders regarding a future invasion of Greece because his father Darius had been defeated in 490 BC and now his son wants to attack again. And so, you know, he's doing what he needs to do to muster up support. He's doing what he needs to do to communicate the strategy that they would have for this war. 
And so as he calls all these guys in, in verse 4, we see that he's kind of showing off, right? The riches, the glory, the splendor of his kingdom. In verse 5, we see there was an encore, a seven-day feast and banquet for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, all the people, great to small. And then in verse 6, we see these beautiful, you know, curtains, right? A combination of white and blue, cords of fine purple. We know that was for the rich of the day. Silver rods, marble pillars. I don't know how for sure they did it. The couches of gold, more than likely, it wasn't what you sat on, but it was just woven within it. Mosaic pavements, alabaster, turquoise, all these things going on. The Greeks served in goblets of gold, all of them custom made. And the king was so generous that we read in verse 8, that they could drink as much as they wanted. And so he didn't force them to drink, but he just told the servants, hey, serve them as much wine as they want, right? And so, um, you guys know how it is? A lot of times in the get-togethers, uh, the guys are over here and the girls are over here. Do you guys ever see that happen? Well, that's what happened here as well in verse 9. Queen Vashti it said, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so the king is with all the guys. He's meeting with the generals, meeting with the leaders. He's strategizing how to make war, right? And then the queen is over here with the sisters. The Bible doesn't say really a whole lot of what they were doing. More than likely, it was a lot more low-key. But then it happens. In verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, these guys are hard to pronounce, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abgtha, Zithar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. He commanded them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. She was gorgeous to look at, right? And so it says in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. And so we get now down to what took place. Man, he, you know, he's shown off his kingdom, food to feast on, wines flowing, cups of gold, couches, marble, floors, pillars, purple linens, mosaic pavements. And then on the seventh day, when the Bible says the heart of the king was merry, that's kind of a nice way of saying he was drunk beyond his senses, right? He has one more thing, one more thing to show off. And that's his wife. She apparently was a very beautiful woman. But, but here's where we begin to learn some important lessons, you know. Um, and I think even today, we need to learn these things in our nation, you know. The, the beauty of a woman is not for all the guys to see. You know, Eve was made for Adam. Queen Vashti was made for King Ahasuerus. Wives are made beautiful for their husbands to behold. How tragic it is and what a terrible and wicked spirit when uh, uh, you know, a woman 
is made to be or make themselves, you know, someone else to be crowned, dressed up for others to see. You know, and in this case, we know it was the husband's fault. You know, what a tragedy how he wants to show all these guys his wife. You know, think that one through for a second, you guys. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that. You know, these guys, there are some guys that want their wives to dress in a provocative way so that others, for whatever strange and weird, to me it's almost demonic reason, so that they can see their wife. You know, and, and you, know, you know, for you ladies, you know, this is something just to really think through, you know. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, out there to impress other guys. You know, I'm not saying you can't put makeup on. Remember Dr. McGee said if the bar needs painting, to paint it, and that's okay. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of you, you don't need makeup. That you don't need makeup like that. I'm not trying to be legalistic or anything, but you know, I mean, you're beautiful already. You know, I just be really careful with stuff like that. It's not wrong to dress nice and neat, and even you know what your future husband might see as attractive. But it's not right to dress seductive. It's not right to have as the motivation of the heart. I want to draw attention to myself. You know, that spirit of wickedness is here in Esther's book. Don't let it be in you. You know, even this pagan queen knew better. Think about that, right? In 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 in NIV, it says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. You know, again, doesn't mean you can't dress nice and neat and perhaps to a certain extent, you know, trendy or stylish or attractive. But you know the difference when it becomes seductive or provocative. You know, the queen knew this, but tragically the king didn't, or at least he didn't care. And I just think it's straight out demonic that there are husbands out there and there are men out there that actually want their wives to dress seductively in public. I mean, to me, it's like they're drunk and under the influence of, of demons. And so that's what the king wants. Hey, I've shown you everything else, so let me show you my wife. She's beautiful to behold. And so what ends up happening, the king sends seven eunuchs to get her. And we see in verse 10 and 11, so the guys can gaze on her beauty. Again, very weird. Now, I was thinking about this. Uh, for you guys here, how many of you are married? Just out of curiosity, you're married. Okay. Guys that are married, have you ever been in a situation where you noticed that some guy was checking out your wife? I know it sounds weird, huh? You know, you went somewhere and some guy's checking out your wife. Have you ever been in a situation like that? I mean, let me tell you, that's not good, right? But here's the king inviting that. I mean, that's from the pit of hell. I'm just, I'm just so thankful that Vashti said no. It says there in verse 12 that she refused. And so what happened in verse 12? The king's response, Therefore the king was furious. And his anger burned within him. 
You know, he was hot, right? And when you look at this, and I think for us, we got to know that this is nothing but pride. You know, a closer look at this mighty king, think about it, ruling 127 provinces, uh, the worldwide leader reveals him to be, at this stage in his life, a terrible leader. You know, he lacked self-control, was for the most part actually controlled by his advisors, we're going to see, who were not wise. He made impetuous decisions, you know, right away, rooted in his emotions and pride, rather than reason and wisdom. He had a problem with alcohol, he had a problem with anger, and that's a terrible combination that many men still struggle with. You know, I, just as a side note here, you know, I don't know if anyone here drinks. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you did. A lot of times people justify it. They're like, well, it's just a, a little social thing. You know, be really careful with that, you know. I, I mean, too bad this guy didn't read the Proverbs written by the wise King Solomon who said, beware of anger. In Proverbs 16.32, it says, better to be slow to anger than to be a mighty warrior. And one who controls his temper is better than one who captures a city. Any of you guys struggle with anger? You know, probably some of us do. And, you know, we're going to see what it does to this marriage. I mean, the marriage ends in divorce because of pride, because of alcohol, because of anger. Beware of anger. The Italian poet, Alatino, he said this, Angry men are blind and foolish. For when they're angry, reason leaves. And in her absence, wrath plunders all the riches of the intellect, while judgment remains the prisoner of its own pride. Now beware of anger, beware of alcohol. Again, Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, old emule. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. You know, some people, they justify their drinking by saying, why, well, I only do it occasionally, and I just do it socially. But let me ask you a question, why? Why? You don't need it. I, I was drinking ever since I, I can remember, man. I remember seven years old, little beer, cans of beer. And I think I just kept drinking all the way until the day that I got saved. And then when I got saved, I realized the foolishness of it. Why? Why do you need that? Well, I need it to, to be a different person. You need it to, to loosen up. No, be who God made you to be. You know, Ephesians 5.18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You know, when you're drinking, you're under the influence, and it causes you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. But the Bible says, rather than being under the influence of alcohol, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. See, we, we see the problems it, it creates and so many times. In this case, we see it destroyed his marriage. And I think I've heard that many, many times before. You know, it's so deceptive how the modern day advertisements for alcohol presented as if to say social drinking and success go hand in hand. You know, Warren Wisby said this, pastors, social workers, doctors, 
dedicated members of Alcoholics Anonymous would paint a much different picture than modern day society. They've seen firsthand the wrecked marriage, ruined bodies, ruined minds, abused families, and shattered careers that often accompany what people call social drinking. Any of you guys heard of that guy Connie Mack, out of curiosity? A couple of you baseball fans. He was a coach for 51 years. And so he knew two things. He knew baseball and he knew beer. <laughs> and, he, and he said this. It's interesting. He says, Alcohol had no more place in the human body than sand has in the gas tank of an automobile. And, and you know what? He's right, you guys. I mean, we need to know it's a narcotic. It's not a food. It's destructive. It's not nourishing. And it's a choice. It's not a disease. So anyways, that, that's what led up to the king being such a fool. The pride, the alcohol, and the anger, right? And so what ends up happening is this family disagreement turns into a national crisis. In verse 13, it says, Then the king, he said to the wise men, who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsana, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in his kingdom, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuchs. And so when this all happens, you know, he calls her out. She doesn't come. She refuses to come. He's furious. He's anger, angry. He gets these seven guys. They're his counselors. He says, what should we do, right? He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs for he always asked for his advice. advice. And, you know, it's crazy what seven days and seven eunuchs and seven unwise men can lead to. You know, the king asked, what shall we do? The queen, the queen broke the law. She didn't obey my command. And so this is what they say in verse 16. And Memucham answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report Queen Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And so this guy uh, among the seven approached by the king, 
he answers and he says that the queen has not only wronged the king, but all the princes and therefore all the provinces of King Ahasuerus would be affected. And, and what we find, you guys, first of all, huge exaggeration based upon a false premise, right? You know, it says right there that, that she's done wrong. Look in verse 16. She's not only wronged the king. You know, the, the, the false premise is that she did something wrong. But all the princes and therefore all the promises of King Ahasuerus didn't understand what to do. No, what the king did was wrong. See, and a lot of times what happens and when there's conflict in marriage, it's right there, isn't it? I mean, if they just would see that I'm right all the time, we wouldn't fight, right? <laughs> you got to back up a little bit. You got to look up. You got to exert your heart. You know, a lot of times what I've found when I've thought for sure my wife is wrong is I have a, a part to play in that a lot of times, you know? I mean, it's important for us to know that we are not required to submit to those placed over us by God if they ask us to do something that is clearly wrong. You guys, and that's what we see taking place here. You know, when the religious authorities in Jerusalem commanded the apostles not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus, they didn't submit, right? They said, hey, you can never preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And so... You know, what do you do? These are the religious authorities. These are our governors over us, right? We read their response in Acts 5.29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men, right? I mean, whenever there's a clear conflict between the commandments of God and the commandments of men, who do you listen to? You listen to the Lord, Right? We are called to submit to our government. We are called to submit to law enforcement. We're called to submit to our bosses at work. And yes, even wives are called to submit to their husbands. But if any of those authorities ask you to sin, then you are called to submit to God and not them. See? I mean, it's weird. I know it sounds weird, but think about some husband saying, sweetheart, you should wear your skirts a little shorter, your pants a little tighter, your tops a little lower, don't you think? Sorry, daddy, I'm not going to do that. That's from the devil. We see, we submit to God. You know, this advisor was worried that the word would get out and all women would despise and disrespect their husbands. But man, imagine if it was played a different way. What if the king had humbled himself? You know, what if he came to his senses and he realized for me to call my wife out here, for other men to look at and behold, what if he just thought it through and realized it's wrong, right? What if he humbled himself? Everything would have been different, right? You know, there's something about humility. There's something about transparency, and even those things done publicly that can be used for good. You know, what if the king said, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. You know, what if that would have happened? Then this is what would have taken place. People would have thought to themselves, well, the king has a marriage just like mine, <laughs> where his wife thinks for herself, right? And, and that's what he does when he's wrong. He admits he's wrong and then does what's right. Sounds like a pretty good leader to me. 
See, but what gets in the way? It's pride. It's pride. When we don't want to admit that we're wrong, and you can hear it sometimes in those arguments that take place, why is it that you have to get the last word? Nothing but pride. We have to be so careful in these things, you know. Uh, uh, Proverbs twelve sixteen NLT says, A fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. And so this guy right here, he offers a solution. He says, hey, just get rid of her. Replace her with someone better. Don't let her despise or disrespect you. Divorce her. That's basically what he says. He says, if you do that and the decree is proclaimed throughout the empire, all the wives will honor and respect their husbands the way they really should. Now, do you think that's true? (laughs) I don't think so, right? I think it's terrible advice. Surely someone as wise as the king of 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. I mean, surely the most... Powerful man in the world will reject the foolish counsel that he's been given, right? But uh, unfortunately, I'm wrong. Notice it says in verse 21, And the reply pleased who? The king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. And then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And so the king agreed with the council of Memucan and he did what he suggested. He divorced his wife. Not only that, he sent out a bulletin to everyone in their own language in the entire kingdom that every man should be master in his own house. And, and what that literally means is this. This is basically what he says. I want you to send a letter to every household that, this is what, what you've got to say, that whatever he says goes. Now, how many of you husbands would like that? Just out of curiosity. Ladies, what do you think about that? that that's the edict that actually went out. And I thought about ending the Bible study right there, but I thought, no, I better not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I read this and it just I think about the contrast between the counsel of men and the counsel of God. What does the Bible say? It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. And so here's the counsel of the world saying, You guys, you're the, you're the boss, man. What you, what you say goes. And, and then God says, no, as husbands, what I want you to do is that I want you to die for her. And you put her needs before your own. You know, I've told you guys many times, we're not to be a shoving leader, but a loving leader. Yeah, we do have responsibility and authority as head of the home, but that authority is actually to be used to do what's right in God's sight and to please Him. First him, then our wives before ourselves. You know, it's interesting. Again, there in verse 21, you know, and the king, the, all these guys, they, they did according to the word of Memucan. It, it re, the reply, it says, it pleased the king. Something that I thought was interesting is the phrase, if it pleases the king, is found nine times in the Bible. 
seven times in the book of Esther. And so that's the type of king that this was. And so you read this chapter, we learn lessons, so many things. A lot of wrong done by the rulers. And so in closing, as we go through the book of Esther, let me ask you guys this question. Does it mess up God's plan? Even though you got this guy doing his thing and that sin over there and, you know, a divorce and man, it just breaks your heart. The, the thing that we need to know is that, yeah, man rules, but God overrules. What we're going to see is that in this nation and situation, even though God is not mentioned or seen, what we find is that he's working behind the scenes. And his will will be done. Israel will survive and the Messiah would be born to save the world. It kind of reminds me of Jonah even, you guys. Remember Jonah? How he was you know, going the wrong way and the Lord says, Hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. And uh, what did the Bible say? Jonah actually went the other way. He went towards Spain and he just kept going down and down and down. And so... You know, he just wanted to die. I mean, think about this. You know, throw me over the ship. You know, I don't care if I die. You know, it's my fault that we're experiencing this crazy storm. He didn't want to live, but it just blew me away how when they threw him in the water, how God had prepared a fish for who knows how long. It's probably a big fish. And as he's there, he just, you know, he swallows him up. And, you know, undoubtedly, he makes a right turn. He starts heading towards Nineveh. And it was during that time, even though Jonah was going the wrong way, that God in his sovereign grace was still working behind the scenes to get his will done. You know, and when I, when I read those things, it doesn't make me necessarily, you know, say, well, it's okay to sin and, you know, you know God's going to work it all out. But I tell you what, when I go through the hard times, when, you know, whatever happens, you feel like you're mistreated or misunderstood and all these crazy things and calamities are happening in your life, it is so comforting to know that God is still on the throne. And, you know, you might look at your life and you're like, well, not me, Manny, I don't, you know. No, you too. All of us. We need to know that. And so even though you have all this drama and all this craziness and all this drunkenness and all this anger and even, you know, things like divorce and all that kind of stuff, it's just so cool to know, man, that the Lord is on the throne. He wants Israel, you know, to be preserved. And we know the primary reason back then was because it was through Israel that Jesus would come, right? And that's the bottom line here for us today. I know most of you here, probably if not all of you are Christians. But if you're not, I just want to let you know and tell you a little bit about Jesus. Because this whole lesson encourages me to trust God and hold to my integrity no matter what, like Vashti did. It also encourages me to tell you about Jesus. That God in His providence, He worked it all out for Israel to be a sign and for the Savior to be born so that we might be born again. And so, are you saved? Do you really know the Lord? I pray if you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would make that decision today. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626 
Remember that Jesus loves you.